in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the, of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow windows high up in the temple walls. Against the walls of the main hall and the inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were, were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So the built, he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar, wood, uh, cedar boards, panelling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in the front of the room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar, no stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details 
according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. Uh, now, before COVID, uh, my in-laws didn't mind a bit of international travel, and they were always kind enough to send us some pictures of the places they were visiting as they went, uh, which I've never resented in any way, uh, and only ever appreciated. It, it can be hard to be happy for other people sometimes. Uh, one of the happy snaps that we received was of this building. Uh, now, I'm sure in a crowd as cultured as this, someone can tell me what we're looking at. Mike? Oh, very close. He's got it. It's the, par it's the House of Parliament in Budapest, or as I say in Hungary, Budapest. Um, that's the SBS version of, yeah. And it is a truly magnificent building, um, built on the shores of the Danube River. Uh, not as old as you might think. Uh, it was built in 19, well, completed in 1904. They actually started construction in 1885. It took 19 years to build. In fact, it took so long to build that the architect who designed it went blind before the end of its construction. More than 1,000 people were involved, uh, 40 million bricks, half a million precious stones, 40 kilograms of gold were used, uh, just to add some bling, uh, and inside and out, it is a thing of beauty. There's the, uh, the other side of the building. Now, this morning we're looking at the construction and the dedication of another rather magnificent building, uh, the temple built by Solomon. Uh, now, this temple was about more than simply good architecture. Uh, it was a building that would come to shape the very identity of God's people. And the project itself was undoubtedly uh, the greatest achievement in the reign of King Solomon. Um, and it becomes the centrepiece of the relationship between God and his people in the years to come. But the temple had significance for us as well, because this building points forward to something even more significant and far greater that God would come to do through his son. But we'll come to that a little bit later. And now, to understand the significance of the construction of this building, you've kind of got to go back into Israel's history about 500 years uh, to the time when Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Because before the temple, there was, as Tim reminded us, the tent, or the tabernacle, as it was called. Um, and it would have looked a little something like this. When God rescued his people from Egypt, uh, he made a covenant with them. He gave them the law, including the Ten Commandments, but he also gave them very detailed instructions about the construction of this thing uh, that we call the tabernacle. Uh, this, for 500 years, was Israel's focal point in their relationship with God, in their worship of God. It was where the sacrifices were made, it was where the priests did their work, it was where all the big uh, religious and even uh, civic festivals took place. All the religious ceremonies happened around this structure. And, of course, it was practical as well because at the time when God gave them the tabernacle to build, Israel was literally on the move. Uh, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years before going into the promised land. And so the tabernacle had to be a portable thing, which it was. We're now 500 years uh, down the track. King David and King Solomon have established Israel as a, a stable nation. Uh, they're settled in the land. 
And so the time has come to build this permanent structure. Uh, King David, if you know the story, he wanted to build this temple. God told him that he could not. Uh, in fact, that it would be one of his sons who would finish the job. Uh, David made lots of preparations for the building of the temple, but the task was to fall to Solomon. Uh, and Solomon himself is well aware of this, uh, and he understood that this was going to be a part of his responsibility. And what we read in these chapters of 1 Kings is Solomon taking on that task and completing it. And now, even from the reading that we had earlier, you'll notice that in these chapters we get a lot of detail about this building and its construction, uh, from the materials uh, to how it was made, even the furniture that goes inside the building. It was a rather massive undertaking, and it resulted in what was a truly magnificent building. Um, in the end, the, the complex would have looked a little something like this. Uh, we don't know exactly. Obviously, it's not around anymore, uh, and there were no photos taken at the time. Uh, but it would have looked something like that. The, the wider court area, it was a, a rather large complex, um, would have looked something like that. Now, the, the temple building itself is not actually that big. If you read the, the dimensions that are given, it wouldn't have been much bigger than the size of this church building. But it was made of the very finest stone uh, and timber and precious metals. We read that the whole building took about seven years to complete and it involved the work of tens of thousands of craftsmen and labourers, uh, some of whom may not have been all that happy to be doing the work because as we read in 1 Kings chapter 5, uh, they were conscripted, many of them. Uh, it said King Solomon conscripted labourers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Uh, Adronium was in charge of the forced labour. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills. Uh, this was a nation-building infrastructure project. Tens of thousands of labourers are, are needed uh, and if they weren't willing to work, well, they were made to work. Uh, Solomon sent them off in shifts to work and camp in Lebanon, cutting cedar, uh, floating it down the Mediterranean Sea uh, and picking it up and bringing it back inshore to Jerusalem. It would have been quite the exercise. Um, but it was also carefully considered. Uh, in our reading, you might have noticed that it talked about how the stone was all cut off-site. Uh, the idea was that the, the temple site itself uh, was not going to be a noisy construction zone. Uh, everything was cut off-site uh, and brought as required and pieced together where the, the temple was being assembled. And of course the inside, as we read, uh, was rather lavish as well, dripping with gold. Uh, Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. And so he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. You get the idea. No expense is being spared on the construction of this building because this is the place where God's name would dwell. This building was going to be the centrepiece of religious life in Israel. Now, when the building is finally completed, uh, Solomon conducts this rather elaborate dedication ceremony in Jerusalem. And kind of the, the heart of this ceremony is the time when they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Um, now, if you're wondering that, Yes, that's the Ark from the Indiana Jones movie. Uh, it was this box, really, a gold-covered box, that housed the two stone tablets that God had 
inscribed the Ten Commandments on when he gave Moses the law. And so for the people of Israel, this ark, well, it was more than just a nice piece of furniture. For the Israelites, the ark as it lived firstly in the tabernacle and now in the temple, was speaking to the people of God's very presence with them, symbolically speaking. Um, They, in fact, viewed it as kind of the throne of God. That's where God sat. That's kind of where he dwelt. Um, The ark also, because of what it contained with the Ten Commandments, reminded them of the covenant that God had made with them, his promises to them, and also their obligations towards God. And so when the temple gets dedicated, they bring the ark into the, the most holy place, the inner room, And God demonstrates his approval and his presence with them by coming in the form of this cloud. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 8, as this all takes place, we read this. Uh, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister before, uh, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. It would have been a sight to see. Uh, and for the Israelites, understandably, an overwhelmingly exciting time for them. Um, all that God had promised them through Abraham is reaching its fulfilment here. But as Tim asked the question during the kids' talk, did God really live there? Um, Did the people of Israel really think that God was living in that building? Did God want them to think that he was sitting on top of that ark in the inner sanctuary of the temple? Uh, Well, if anyone was under that impression, Solomon wants to dispel that notion because when Solomon prays at the dedication... Uh, Look at what he says. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon understands that he hasn't actually built a house for God to live in. No matter how big or grand the temple was, uh, of course it could never contain the one who made the universe itself. God doesn't live in buildings built by human hands no matter how much cedar or gold is used in its construction. So if God wasn't actually living there, then what was the significance, what was the point of the temple? Well, it was there for a number of reasons, I think. It was to serve as a constant reminder to Israel about who they were, that they were God's people, and that God was present with them and present among them. But the temple was more than that too. And when you read through Solomon's prayer, you see something of the the function of the temple coming through. Uh, So further on in chapter 8, Solomon prays this. He says, Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
the temple was to be the focus of their prayers. It was a, the place where they were to turn to when seeking God, trusting that God would hear them. In particular, they would look to the temple when they needed God's forgiveness. Uh, in fact, we won't read these out, but if you read on in the rest of chapter 8, Solomon outlines all these different scenarios where Israel uh, is going to fail God, uh, rebel against him, disappoint him. Solomon knows that God's people will continue to disobey and are going to continue to rely upon and need the mercy of God. And so he outlines all these different scenarios and he says, when that happens, turn back to God, turn back to this place, seek God's forgiveness. And he urges and he, he even begs God that when that time comes, God would forgive his people and show them mercy. So in all these ways, the temple is to be the focal point of Israel's relationship with God, the kind of beating heart of their spiritual life. It was to symbolise God's presence among them. It was to remind them of the covenant that God had made with his people. It was to be the focus of their prayers and it was to be the place that they would turn when they sought God's forgiveness. But perhaps the most important role that the temple will come to play is one that the people of Israel weren't yet aware of. Because the temple is going to be used by God to reveal something of the richness and the wonder of who the Lord Jesus is. This physical temple is going to give us both a taste and an insight into what God has in store for us through Jesus. See, Solomon asked that fascinating question at the dedication. He said, does God really dwell on earth? And the short answer, of course, was, well, not in that building, he didn't. But as with many things that we see in the pages of the Old Testament, it's a shadow of a reality that is yet to come. See, the more complete answer to Solomon's question is, will God really dwell on earth? It's yes, he did. See, when we open up the pages of the New Testament, we find Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God come to dwell on earth. And so John uses this language in the opening chapter of his, of his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, and that word for dwelling is literally uh, the word for tabernacling, if that is a word. It's the idea of pitching your tent. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. See, if the temple was the symbol of God being present with his people, Jesus is God with his people. In Jesus, it's as though God has come and pitched his tent and dwelt among us. In Jesus, God comes to be present with us in a new way. So much so that Jesus would use the temple as a metaphor for himself. In the next chapter of John, Jesus says this in kind of debating the religious leaders. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This was the second, perhaps the third temple, in fact. Uh, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. See, Jesus is here declaring that he is the real temple. That he's come to supersede this physical building. And that he's going to do it through his body, through his death and his resurrection. 
is God in the flesh, dwelling on earth. He is the reality of what the temple symbolised. And all of the things that the temple represented, all of the functions that it it served, are all fully realised in Jesus. So Israel was to look at the temple as a reminder of their covenant relationship with God. Well, we look to Jesus as the one who makes every promise of God sure and certain. And Jesus, in fact, is the one who establishes a new relationship between people and God. Israel was to look to the temple as the focus of their prayers. Well, Jesus tells us that now when we pray, we can pray in his name and pray directly to our Heavenly Father. So even when Jesus dies on the cross, remember that the the temple inside the curtain is torn in two, showing that we can enter into that uh, most holy place, the, the very presence of God. We do that directly through him. Israel was to look to the temple as a source of their forgiveness through their sacrifices they made there, through praying to God and seeking his forgiveness. Well, of course, we now know that Jesus has dealt with our sin once and for all, as we've just remembered and celebrated today. We need only to look to him. We can only look to him to find mercy from God. All that was foreshadowed in the temple becomes a reality becomes fuller and richer in Christ. There's one more way that the idea of the temple is reimagined for us in the pages of the New Testament, and it's got to do with us, uh, God's people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. That might might seem like a pretty weird idea, but Paul is saying to the Corinthian church here that they are now God's temple. See, Jesus promised that he would always be present with his people, and he is, by his spirit. God's people in that way have become the new temple, not, not through the building that they meet in, but because... It's a people, a gathered people, who actually have God dwelling with them through his spirit. God's presence is manifest in this world through his church, through his people. Now, all of that has some implications for us. Firstly, we do well to remember that God doesn't dwell in buildings. Even Solomon knew that bit of a downer on the day that he was dedicating the temple perhaps, but he wanted to remind people that God wasn't there, not in a real sense. Sadly, there are plenty of churches around who still promote the idea that the building that they meet in is God's house, that it should be treated as something sacred. I wonder if you can see how unhelpful it might be to refer to a building like this as God's house. Because that's temple language. Now, I know people mean different things when they talk like that. And churches are buildings dedicated to God. But I think it's unhelpful to give anyone the impression that God lives here. He is certainly present with his people. He's with us now as we gather together. But not because this is some sort of holy ground. It's because his people are gathered here in his name. 
and his spirit is among us. And of course, the second implication, I think, flows from that first one. That is, we don't come here to meet God. We don't meet God in a building. We meet God in his son. And to put the focus on the building and the structure itself is to misunderstand Jesus as the fulfillment of what the temple promised to be. See, if you want to meet God, you don't go to a fancy building, a cathedral, a temple. You go to Jesus. If you want to ask for your sins to be forgiven, don't turn towards a sacred building and its religious activities. Turn to Jesus, knowing that his final perfect sacrifice has already been made for you. See, it's in Jesus that we find forgiveness, find true life through the Spirit of God that, well, transforms our hearts. In fact, enables us to serve God in a way that, well, the Israelites never could, even with their temple. Our focus should always be on the one who came and pitched his tent with us, who promised to make his home with us. So Solomon's temple was certainly a thing of beauty and it would have been something to see, certainly to have been there on that day that it was dedicated. But how much more blessed are we to have the reality of the Son, to know him, to have experienced his mercy, and to know his presence by the Spirit of God.